I think every one of us would agree with the statement if you were to say, I want the church to grow. I think every one of us would say that. I want the church to grow. And the church is growing. You may say, wait a minute, I, I read reports all the time that Christianity in America just isn't going well. I, I didn't say the church in America. I said the church is growing. I get reports constantly, read reports and hear reports constantly from places in the world reminding us that there are places in the world where the church is absolutely exploding. Just recently, in fact, about a month ago, I guess it was, I was told that about 10 years ago, there were approximately 50 gospel preachers on the entire Iowa nation of Cuba, and that each of those men preached in front of very small congregations. But now, about 10 years later, it's estimated there are about 500 gospel preachers on that same Iowa nation. And many of the congregations are still small, but there's a need for even more than those 500 men preaching the gospel on that small Iowa nation. Other reports could be given from places like China, many places in Africa and elsewhere. And I'm thankful for them. I hope you are as well. I hope you're encouraged when you hear about pockets in the world where the church is continuing to grow and flourish. It's wonderful to know that. And I want the church to grow all throughout the world. I want to, I want to continue to receive reports and read reports of places where the church nationally or in particular pockets is continuing to grow. But folks, I want this church to grow. A few weeks ago, you remember, and it's still going on, I guess, we were having our parking lot worked on. We'll get it done by 2020. It'll be finished, but it's continuing to be worked on. You remember, remember three or four weeks ago or so, the elders asked us for a couple of services if we were able to park over in that grassy area across the street for, so people could park closer who needed to. I told Leah this, and I've saved it till now in a sermon, but I thought that was kind of ironic, and here's why. Most days during the week when I eat my lunch here, I'll bring my lunch and just eat for a few minutes and I'll just kind of walk around, stretch my legs, get some fresh air when it's not, you know, 176 degrees outside. I'll just get some fresh air outside. And not every day, but quite often I'll walk out here and literally stop and look across the street at that grassy area and dream. Dream of the day when that's full of cars too. When it's not just a grassy area. I want this church to grow. For the next three Sundays, we're going to be considering not really church growth. You may think, well, if he wants the church to grow, and now he's telling us we're not talking about church growth, because something has to be in place before a church can grow. We know it in so many areas of life. For, for example, some of you like to grow flowers or vegetables or those sorts of things, and you know that if you're going to try to grow a, a plant, certain things have to be in place. There has to be health before there's growth. And sometimes a plant will perk up a little bit, or maybe it starts producing a, a flower or the fruit, and we might even say something like that, that sure is a healthy plant. I mean, we talk like that. We understand that. We understand that in our own physical growth. We try to teach our children, our young people, certain habits to, to have hygiene and health, because if, if they don't grow, we get very, very concerned. If they're not, I'm not talking about being short. Sure, they don't grow at all. We get very concerned because something just isn't, isn't right here. The same is true of a congregation. There are certain things that must be in place as it pertains not just to the growth of a congregation, but to the health that must be in place for a church to grow. You remember the Apostle Paul did not say, I gave the increase. 
But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. What Paul, if I may paraphrase, basically was saying was, Paul and Apollos dealt with the health. It was God who then gave the growth or the increase. And so for the next three Sundays, this morning included, we're going to be studying three lessons that we're simply entitling, Healthy Things Grow. We understand that in the physical world, the plant world, we understand that in the the physical world as far as animals and even our own bodies, healthy things grow. But certain things must be in place. And we could, if we wanted to, look at all kinds of so-called church growth experts and the latest trends and socioeconomic studies and so on and so forth. And sometimes those things are helpful. I enjoy reading those things from time to time. But sometimes we read those things and study those things to the exclusion of remembering that God has already given us the plan, and it's found in Ephesians chapter 4. And I want you to open your Bibles back to that text we read a few minutes ago from Ephesians chapter 4. For the next three Sundays, we're going to be in verses 1 through 16, taking it in parts, because what Paul does, what God does through Paul in these verses, is share with us those conditions of health that need to be in place for a congregation to grow. You know, if you're trying to grow a plant, it's not just one thing. If you were to plant a a seed in some good soil, but then put that jar or that pot in a dark room and never give any water, it's probably not going to grow very well because it's got one of the conditions, but it doesn't have all of them. I say that to say this. These three lessons actually grew out of the idea I was going to do one sermon. I decided I just couldn't do that. I needed to focus on each one of these three things for the length of a sermon. But I don't want us to get the idea that if we have one of these things in place, then we're okay. We must have each of the three. This morning, we're going to discuss the fact that we must have healthy attitudes. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to think about the fact that we must have healthy teaching or healthy doctrine, those seven ones of Ephesians chapter 4. And then in two weeks from today, Lord willing, on July the 17th, we're going to think about the fact that there must be healthy work or healthy labor. But I want you to see where we're going, where all this is driving towards, how the section ends. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Paul said this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, I know I misspelled whole there, sorry, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body, here it is again, grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, what is Paul saying? He is saying the goal of a church, the goal of a congregation, is to grow into the likeness, into the form of Jesus Christ Himself. Folks, that's a lofty standard. I can't think of a more lofty standard. But for that to be true, this is what we're driving toward. For that to be true, certain things must be true, and not just among the leadership, not just among the eldership. Certain things must be true among every member of the church. And one of those things that we're going to think about this morning, we must have healthy attitudes. We're going to study Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 this morning, but I'll go ahead and warn you, we're actually going to study them in reverse order. We're actually going to study verse 3, then verse 2, then verse 1. And I think you'll see why I chose to do that as we try to set this lesson up today. If you think about having healthy attitudes, the kind of attitudes that help a church grow, the first thing we need to remember is actually found in verse 3. And that is that unity must be the driving force. I want you to notice what Paul said in verse 3, that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. Now, folks, everything else we're going to say from this point on in the lesson goes under that. That's the umbrella. In, in many ways, now please don't fall asleep, but in many ways, you've heard the sermon. Because that's what Paul is driving towards in these three verses. When he talks about these attitudes, is we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But what did he mean when he talked about that? Well, unity of the Spirit could mean a couple of very similar things. It could be that we are displaying the unity of the Holy Spirit. It could also mean we are Spirit-filled people. It could also simply mean we are spiritual people. And all those things are tied together. Because we understand the unity of the Spirit of God and the Spirit we are to display when we understand what the Spirit gave, that is, the Word of God. We display that to the world. But Paul says that we're to be eager to maintain. I want to break apart that phrase just a little bit. The word eager, the King James has the word endeavoring. I like that actually a little better. The word can be defined, as you see on the screens, in a few different ways. It can mean to make haste to do something. It can mean to be diligent to do something. I like this third one, exerting oneself to do this. Now, it may seem really obvious, but this is not a passive word. This is an active word. Paul was trying to get his readers to understand that this unity of the Spirit doesn't just happen. It's not some magical formula. It's not just something that you walk in and you come up out of the waters of baptism and boom, you've got it. You must exert yourself. But I also want you to think about the concept of maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Most translations have that or something very similar. But that is a very, very weak word compared to what the word really means. The word really means to guard. And the reason I say maintain is kind of weak is how do we think of the word maintain? Well, I maintain a car, which means every few thousand miles I take in and let somebody else take care of it because I have no earthly idea what I'm doing except putting gas in the thing. Now, some of you all like to tinker with cars, but even then you understand that you only have to do that every so often. This is not an every so often word. When you are guarding something, you are always on duty. You are constantly looking out for something. And you're constantly willing to engage when there is a difficulty, when there's something coming against that which you are guarding. What is Paul saying? He is saying that every member of the Lord's church needs to be willing to exert him or herself to the constant guarding the constant sentry work of the spirit of unity. This is not passive. This is hard stuff. This is very difficult stuff. But that's the driving force behind all of what Paul is saying in this context. And some of you are saying, now wait a minute, he just said that we've already heard the whole sermon in a lot of ways. We're going to study verse 2 and verse 1 here in just a second. Well, before we get there, you may be thinking, I'm not really sure this is worth it. I mean, you're making it sound hard, and it is hard. So I want us to think for a few moments about some biblical things we're not found in this text specifically. Why is this effort important? Why is it so important that we have this attitude of wanting to work towards unity? I want to give you five very biblical reasons very quickly. And the first may not seem like one that you know, go, well, that's kind of obvious. But it, the first one is very simply, it's, it's commanded. Everything Paul writes in this section is not a suggestion. This is a command to God, that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And you say, well, that's not a real great reason. I mean, obviously we're following God, but I mean, that's, that's not a real motivational reason. Well, in many ways it is. Here's where I'm struggling with how to put these three lessons together. I'm trying not to divide them so much. 
There are a lot of people who see Ephesians chapter 4, these first few verses, and all they ever want to focus on begins in verse 4. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, the ones. We have to have the right doctrine. Absolutely. We're going to talk about that next week. And we're going to hit those things hard. Because those are the cardinal doctrines. Those are the things that are the foundations of the church. But folks, I cannot only choose to uphold the seven ones of Ephesians chapter 4. I am also commanded to maintain, to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is also a command. And if I choose the seven ones without choosing verses 1 through 3, what does that say about my relationship with God? It says, I'm God because I get to pick and choose what I do. Folks, this is a command. This is not a suggestion. But far more than that, and continuing on with that, this is also important because it's the desire of God for His people. God gives commands, yes, and He has every right to. But don't you love it when God shares His heart with His people? In John chapter 17, Jesus was facing the cross and He prayed what we sometimes call the true Lord's Prayer or the high priestly prayer. It divides into three parts. The first few verses deal with Him praying for Himself as He's facing the cross. Then He prays for those apostles, those who were in that room with Him as He prayed. But then He transitions to praying for those who would learn about Him through their words. Beginning of verse 20, He said, I don't pray for these also, the apostles, but also for all those who will learn of Me through their word. That's you and me. Because you and I learn about Jesus through the words of the apostles. Acts chapter 2, Peter's speech, First and Second Peter, the writings of Paul, and so forth. But what's his prayer? John 17, 21. That they all may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they all may be one through us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The heart of our Savior in those hours before He went to the cross, was the oneness of His people. This is not simply a command. It is the desire of the heart of God. But also, it's important for us to be willing to exert effort in this because only this kind of unity exemplifies the true oneness of God. I cannot, and I probably never will be able to, get my mind around the concept of how God is God the Father, God is God the Son, and God is God the Spirit. There are three, and yet they are one. Good luck. If you can figure that one out, please inform me of how you figured that out. Uh, My mind just cannot wrap itself around that concept. I know all the word pictures of husband and wife and marriage. I I get all that stuff. But I cannot fully grasp the concept of how three can be one. But I want want us all to understand that even if we cannot fully grasp that concept, when we appreciate that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, And never is there a disagreement or a crossword or a cross thought between any of them. That's the kind of oneness we are to display to the world. We're all different. We look different. We have different backgrounds. Some grew up here. Some grew up in other parts of the country. Some are rich. Some are not rich. Some some have high education levels. Some don't. We have all kinds of differences. But what are we to display to the world? the same kind of unity that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit display to us. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul would describe it as being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. We cannot fully understand that and display that until we are willing to exert ourselves. Fourthly, it's important because, if I may say so, we have a very powerful and very capable enemy. 
You know, Satan would love nothing more than for a congregation just to be rolling along and doing some things and never working towards unity. Just doing stuff, but never working towards unity. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter reminds us that Satan is your adversary or your enemy, some translations have. He's very capable at his job. He's very capable at what he does. And if we are not exerting ourselves toward every other member of the church at working towards unity, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, it may take a while, but Satan is going to find a foothold. He is going to find an in in that congregation, in those people, because we're not on guard against him. And then number five, it's important to do so, if I may end on a good one here, because it's pleasant. In its entirety, Psalm 133 says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. You and I may not understand every last phrase of that psalm, and it's not our intent this morning to try to break that psalm apart. But when you read that very short poem, do you not just feel a sweetness? Do you not just feel a pleasantness? Behold how good and pleasant it is. I've said this before, I think in Bible classes, I may have said it from the pulpit as well, but maybe you've traveled somewhere on vacation or gone to visit somebody or whatever. Maybe you've had this happen where you've gone to a worship service and for some reason when you walked in the door, something just didn't feel right. And it wasn't, you, you know, they, they sang the same songs we sing, they, you know, they had the Lord's Supper, everything was scriptural, but something just didn't feel right. And you found out later the church was going through a struggle. You could just feel it in the air. And You've had the opposite happen as well, haven't you? Where you visited some place, maybe on vacation or somewhere, where you know, maybe the singing wasn't all that great. Maybe the preacher wasn't you know, the greatest orator. He taught the truth, but he wasn't the greatest orator ever. But when you walked in the door, you just felt good. Something was just in the air. I don't know how that works. But I think in part, that's what David is saying. There is simply a pleasantness that is just true when people are willing to work toward that kind of unity. It is pleasant. And so unity is the driving force. But it must be unity upon the unity of the Spirit. Where do we find that? The Word of God. We are unified upon what God has said to us. We're united upon the truths of the New Testament. That's the driving force. Now, how do we get there? Well, the list is found in verse 2. Well, we're seeing that it takes proper attitudes. By the way, a few Sundays ago... We studied a passage from the book of Colossians on forgiveness. This list we're getting ready to study may sound really familiar because Colossians and Ephesians are quite similar. And these lists are quite uh, similar. They're almost exactly the same, in fact. In, In Colossians, Paul is talking about forgiveness. Here, he's talking about maintaining unity. These are the attitudes that must undergird the work that we do if we're going to have unity. First, he says, there must be humility. The King James Version has lowliness. It was a compound word. You see the two words there. The first one meant to cast down. And the second one meant meant your mind. I cast my mind down. That doesn't mean I think less of myself. What it means is I don't think more of myself than I should. I love the King James there. Lowliness. Humility. It is virtually impossible to work toward unity when I think I should get my way all the time. Or when I think my little group should get its way all the time. 
when I think we should just be catered to. Paul says, if to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, there has to be a humility, a casting down of my mind. And by the way, all the things in this list tie together. Because then he says, there must be gentleness. Literally, as I put on the screens, the word is mildness. There's a mildness of the Spirit. It's not someone who just, just gets enraged inside when I feel slighted, when I feel like they're not doing things the way I want them to be done, when they don't, they don't treat the old folks the way they should, they don't treat the youth group the way they should, they don't treat my family the way I think they should. There's a mildness in the Spirit. And then you tie that to the outward expression, there's patience. We defined this word a few Sundays ago, macrothemia, macro, long, themia, heat, long and coming to a place of heated anger. It's the idea of having a long fuse. Listen, it is pleasant to have unity, but sometimes there are bumps along the road to get there. There are difficulties. And Paul is admitting that and including this on the list. There has to be some patience involved in getting there. But if my default response is to just burst out in anger, or if my default response is to just hold in bitterness because somebody said something to me, you know what she said, do you know what she did? Guess what? You're never going to have unity. We're going to be amazed that there's no unity. No, we're not, because Paul has given us the formula, and what he is saying in part is, my default response must be a long fuse. I'm long in coming to a place of anger. Not just fighting back. And then he wraps the list up with a beautiful phrase that we are bearing in love. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, this, this same word for bearing is used in a very famous verse. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That word endure in that verse is the same word as bearing in this verse. I only point that out because I use the word endure far more than I use the word bearing. That's what Paul is saying. How can I endure those times where we're trying for unity, but just something's not right? Something happens. Someone says something. Does something someone does something. How can I endure those times in love, agape, self-sacrificial, others-centered, seeking the best kind of love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not insist on its own way, and so on and so forth from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, you may think, you know, all four things in that list are pretty similar. That's the point. That's exactly the point. Paul is, in part, taking four things in that list and basically saying, you know, humility takes some gentleness, and it's going to express itself in patience, which is going to take a great deal of endurance through love. The four things are meant to overlap. What Paul is saying is, this is absolutely a command, and it's wonderfully pleasant when I'm willing to exert myself to guard that unity, but it's not easy all the time. Certain attitudes must undergird the work. It takes proper attitudes. And again, somebody says, man, this sounds hard. Is it worth it? I want to end at the beginning. So we'd study verse 3, verse 2, and then verse 1. Verse 1 reminds us that unity is a worthy pursuit. Notice again verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
The book of Ephesians falls into two halves. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are the doctrinal section. Some might call it the theological section. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are the practical section. How do I live that out? That's why the word therefore is in verse 1. Based upon these deep doctrinal matters, here's how you live that out. And Paul says how you live that out is a worthy walk. You walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. Well, what is that? It's the rest of the book. It's chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. But it most certainly is chapter 4, verse 1, through verse 16. Growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And the very first thing he talks about when he talks about this worthy walk is being willing to work towards unity. Is it worthy? Yes. It's the first thing he talks about. I need to keep that in mind whenever someone slights me or hurts me. But why is this so important? I want you to consider the context of the book of Ephesians, not not in any depth. And I want to read what may seem like a very lengthy reading, but I want you to follow along with me because it makes the point for me. Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to read with verse 11, and we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 22, without any comment whatsoever. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace." who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near." For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now I know that's a lengthy reading. And we're not going to try to understand every phrase. But I want to read all of it so we could simply get the gist of it. For centuries there had been this division between Gentiles, those who did not follow the law of God, and Jews, those who were under the law of Moses and so forth. We go at other differences as well. But there was all this hostility, all of this tension, we might say, if you want to kind of lessen the word a little bit. What Paul is saying is, for all of that time, that was a very real thing. But now, in Christ, how many people are there? One. One. And did you notice what we're going to study next week, the seven ones? A whole lot of them are found in that text too. One Spirit, one Father, and so forth. So, so what? So what? We live in a world that tries everything for unity except the real answer. 
We live in a world that misdefines unity in an attempt to get to an answer. What Paul was basically saying is, it's almost impossible to consider a larger division or a larger divide than there was between Jew and Gentile. What's the only thing that could ever bring them together? Jesus Christ. I know tomorrow is July the 4th. I know it's an election year, but it needs to be said, folks, no governmental program can ever do this. It just can't. No educational system could ever do this. No war could ever bring this about. Not even a great speech could ever do this. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can bring people together. But nobody out there is ever going to know it unless we display it first. Amen? That's what Paul is saying. That's why it's a worthy walk. That's why it's a worthy walk. It's not just about getting some more numbers. It's also not just about being united on something. It's about being united on the blood of Jesus Christ and why He shed that blood, because that's the only answer the world will ever find to its problem. And I'll tell you, that's worth fighting for. That's worth exerting oneself for. But it's not just worth exerting it Exerting effort for just my little group. It's not just worth exerting that effort towards just the people in my age group. It's not just worth exerting the effort even for my own physical family or extended family. It's not worth exerting that effort just for the people I might sit by. Because you see, the world is looking for a cross. Whether they know it or not. And when every one of us, every one of us, is willing to meet every other one of us at the foot of the cross, in humility, and enduring in love, and I'm willing to exert myself to guard the unity that only comes through the Spirit, you have the bond of peace. Healthy things grow. A church must teach the right things. We're going to talk about that next week. But that's not all Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Listen, nobody, and I mean nobody, is really going to care if you and I hold to the seven ones of Ephesians chapter 4 until they see us living out the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4. That's why it's first. And it's a worthy walk, a worthy pursuit to help the church grow. The only question left for me to ask really is this. Am I, are you, holding to that attitude toward every other member of the Lord's church? Am I exerting myself to guard the unity only brought by the Spirit so that we can truly have the bond of peace? 
If not, aren't you thankful that God is willing to forgive and willing to give us more chances to get our lives right so that we can fight for each other, love each other, encourage each other, and ultimately go home together? This morning, if you need to become a Christian, that blood that Jesus shed on the cross removes sin. When Peter was asked, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness, the liberation from your sins. That's how you become a Christian. And we would love nothing more this morning than for you to enter the family, enter the body through the blood of Christ. Maybe this morning you are a member of the church, but you haven't been exerting yourself and guarding that spirit towards everyone. And you want encouragement or forgiveness. I can't think of anything better than praying for each other and encouraging each other before the throne of God if you'll respond as we stand and sing to encourage.